There is something ungodly about these night wire jobs. You sit up here on the top floor of a skyscraper and listen in to the whispers of a civilization. New York, London, Calcutta, Bombay, Singapore. They're your next door neighbors after the streetlights go dim and the world has gone to sleep. Alone in the quiet hours between two and four, the receiving operators doze over their sounders and the news comes in. Fires and disasters and suicides, murders, crowds, catastrophes. Sometimes an earthquake with a casualty list as long as your arm. The Nightwire man takes it down almost in his sleep, picking it off on his typewriter with one finger. Once in a long time you prick up your ears and listen. You've heard of someone you knew in Singapore, Halifax, or Paris long ago. Maybe they've been promoted, but more probably they've been murdered or drowned. Perhaps they just decided to quit and took some bizarre way out, made it interesting enough to get in the news. But that doesn't happen often. Most of the time you sit and doze and tap-tap on your typewriter and wish you were home in bed. Sometimes, though, queer things happen. One did the other night, and I haven't got over it yet. I wish I could. Those were the first few paragraphs of The Night Wire by H.F. Arnold. Many say the most popular weird tale story of all time, and we will be transmitting our thoughts about it to you here on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We're at HPPodcraft.com and Patreon, and happy 2019! How did that happen so fast? We're in the future. I know! I'm off to retire some replicants. (laughs) It's the time to do it. 2019, all replicants must be put down. Well, not all of them, just the Nexus 6. uh... Yeah, if they're on Earth. But that's the thing, is that was the future. 2019 Mm -hmm. was definitely the future, and now is now. We live in it. That's crazy. I hope everybody had a good holiday and a good New Year's Eve, a good New Year's Day. It is a time of renewal. Mm. Here in in the New Year, it's a time of hope, a time of change. Yes. We're certainly excited about all the projects we have in store for folks this year. We'll be uh, we'll be celebrating the show's 10th anniversary Woo! this summer, and uh, we'll be doing some changes to the show, adding some things. Yeah, It's going to be good stuff. But right now, we're going to dig into what we're calling New Fears. Happy New Fears, happy New Fears. <laughs> May we have a vision now of the end of a world where every neighbor is a killer cyborg. I'm still working on it. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good jingle. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> that was, it was, it's an ABBA parody. Well, I like it. Keep working on it. Okay. This month is a potpourri of weird tales to get us warmed up for the year. I like to kind of ease into it. And many of these were suggested by listeners. This one, The Nightwire, is a very popular suggestion. But one listener, Mike Vogts, Vogts, it's V-O-G-D-S, not exactly sure how to pronounce it, but Mike was persistent. Mm. He said, I'm just going to write every week and suggest this. The Nightwire until you finally cover it. And I was really impressed because he did that for about one week and then gave up. <laughs> no. I actually, I told him, I said, hey, don't you don't need to do that. We, we will cover it at some point. And here we are. Okay. So thank you, Mike, for, for suggesting it and being a, a champion of the story because it's awesome. Who was that reader? That was A God Among Men, Andrew Lehman. Yes. Who else would we have to kick things off for 2019? You know that old saying, when your new fears concept is kind of weak theming, you better have a reader as good as Andrew Lehman. <laughs> I know it's kind of weak theming because I sent you an email a few weeks ago and I said, hey, how about something like New Fears, huh, for January? And the only thing you wrote back was, f*** you. 
<laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> it is. Yet here we are in, in new fears. Let me tell you something about Lehman, though. He's got it going on, dog. Get on over to the HP Lovecraft Historical Society. Uh, let me tell you about a couple things they have, some recent additions to the site. They have Dark Adventure Decoder Badges. You get oh, one of yes. these... You can mm-hmm. decipher secret messages included with their radio productions when you, when you pick those up. Oh, yeah. And I don't know about you, Chris, but once I've opened the jewel case for a Dark Adventure radio theater recording and examined the multiple props included within, I just can't seem to squeeze them all back into the packaging. Nope. And that's why the HPLHS has released the Dart Collector's Prop Binder. Ah, yes. It's really cool packaging for you to store all this stuff in. It's got room for all your props from all of the productions. And there's still room for more for the many future productions that are coming down the line. Enough room to keep a squirrel in there. No problem. Wow. Any little pet like that. Totally fine. Yeah. You can snatch it all up today at HPLHS.org along with tons of movies, music, radio, and cool merchandise. Please check it out. Yes. Uh, How about this H.F. Arnold guy, the author of this story? We've never covered him before. Yeah, well, boy, you're in for a treat here. Henry (laughs) Ferris Arnold was born in 1902, supposedly, Mm -hmm. because actual facts about this guy are pretty sketchy, which is creepy in and of itself. Some say that he was a journalist and then he died in 1963, but I can't confirm that. It doesn't seem that anybody can really confirm that. No. He only has three published stories that anybody's aware of. This one, The Night Wire, was in Weird Tales in 1926. The City of Iron Cubes in 1929, also in Weird Tales. And When Atlantis Was in 1937. And that is it. I found on a message board when I was combing around, and I looked for a while to find any kind of bio on this guy that was right. could be corroborated. Uh, one person wrote, and I have no idea where this comes from, he was an Illinois native who worked as a Hollywood press agent in the 1920s and 30s. Mm -hmm. Don't know if that's true or not. It seems likely that Arnold spent time working night shifts at newspapers, too. But I don't know where that comes from or if they're just assuming that because of the content of of this story. story. I I don't know. Considering the content of the story, and we could talk about it when we're done, but it's odd that it seems like this author just appeared, knocked this out, published it, then vanished. Yeah. It's yet another mysterious level of distance from the events that are recounted, especially because this was Weird Tales' most popular story. It got reprinted over and over. It's been in a ton of anthologies. For it to be that famous and popular for people to have no idea who this guy is. I don't know. It could be mysterious or maybe this is a pseudonym, maybe for another author who just never admitted it. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. I can't believe that. Yeah. After reading the story, it's shocking to me that we have not yet covered it. So I'm, I'm glad Mike suggested it. Yeah. So let's get into it. It begins with our narrator, a guy called Jim, who works at a Nightwire service. And I'm guessing that means a Newswire service for a news agency. And this guy works at night as world news is always happening. Yeah, things come in over the wire from people who are in the field all over the world, reporters. And it's his job to type this info up, or at least to manage the room where that happens. These reportings get typed up into little news articles that then get edited and reprinted in various newspapers. It's a lot like the Associated Press uh, in the U.S. or Reuters in the U.K., Both of those agencies were founded around 1850 Mm -hmm. as a way for news sources to share costs on up-to-the-minute reporting. I know the Associated Press, it was because the Mexican-American War was going on, and people wanted to know, you know, day by day what was happening. It was too much for any one newspaper to have reporters embedded in the field, so all the newspapers decided to share costs Ah, and set up this service that would get things in, and then they could just all reprint 
that stuff. And obviously, these days, the media is hyper-targeted towards certain audiences. Mm -hmm. That goes for news, obviously, as well. But these sources are still used between all the outlets, no matter how they lean. Mm -hmm. They're mostly used for things where there isn't a spin, like a tragedy. Right. If there's an earthquake, we want to know how many people were killed, what's the current status of recovery efforts. And so that's not as much of a biased thing. But it also seems to be the bread and butter of this Wire reporter. Yes. As we heard in the opening, the earthquakes, the murders. If he hears the name of somebody he's acquainted with, it's more often than not because he or she committed suicide or or was killed. Mm -hmm. So the opening strikes this really lonely, melancholy tone. Yes. uh, Which is an interesting contrast. The the character's totally connected to the entire world via the service, yet completely removed from it and isolated. Mm -hmm. I think that this seems like a unique job to have, and it's a cool way in for the story. Mm -hmm. But it also makes Jim kind of an everyman. Because even in 1926, when this was published, people were connected to the outside world more than they'd ever been. Sure. And also, if you think about this as a predictor for us today, we're getting massive amounts of information about the world through our computers and our televisions and our, and our phones. We have rectangles that we carry around in our pockets. The president can scream at us through. <laughs> and we're transcribing it and we're commenting on it. And we're transmitting the info along our social networks, etc., And yet we are kind of cut off from most of these events, except for what comes in through those mediums. Sure. We can't impact or change the things that we're reading about and absorbing. We can only get it. You know, it all comes one way. Sure. And one could argue that despite having all this information, folks feel even more isolated than they ever have. Yeah. Not to go on about it too long, but this works especially well because as far as I know, the story is not specific about when it takes place. It could be in the present day of 1920s, or this could possibly be in the future. It could be now. Sure. We know that Jim handles the night manager's desk in a western seaport town. And I believe H.F. Arnold is American, so I'm guessing this is up in Washington or Oregon. Mm-hmm. But in terms of when it happens, it's nebulous. So I think it it works really well as a modern story, sure. as well as an old Weird Tales story. There's nothing about this that really sets it at a, at a specific time, except for Mm-mm. the fact that there is a newswire. Other than that, it could be sure. Anytime. But maybe that's, you know, we have so many things that we slang out from what they used to be. I mean, we call them telephones still, even sure. though that is a, you know, that's a holdover from telegraphs. And, and so, you know, it, the wire could just mean it's the Internet, you know, or it's yeah. any other kind of way that it gets transmitted to these folks. So our guy, Jim, he works with this other fella named John Morgan. Yes, and he's the only other night operator on the staff. John is a hardworking, serious guy, but he's also a double man, which means he could handle two instruments at once and type the stories on different typewriters at the same time, Hmm. which sounds pretty crazy. He's the only one of three men that Jim knows that can actually do that. And I personally think nobody can do that. That sounds ridiculous. (laughs) I call shenanigans. Yeah, well, you probably don't realize it because we record in separate locations, but I actually am always transcribing this show with both hands while we record it. What? Yeah. Wait, two different transcriptions? One with each hand? Well, yes, except that on the left, I'm translating it into Latin, and on the right, I'm translating it into Greek. So, yeah, so it's actually two different... That's why I don't bother putting it on the internet, because most folks, you know, couldn't read those classical languages. (laughs) You know, there's this country called Greece? Yes, I know, and they speak Latin in Latin America. We all know this, but the... (laughs) The uh, No, that was something that my Latin teacher in college said that, you know, students of classical literature were supposed to be able to write Latin with one hand and simultaneously write Greek with the other. And I really yeah, but nobody did that. I had the same reaction as you. I was like, no way that that has to be. And now just doing a real quick Internet search to see if there's any substantiated case of somebody being able being able to write two different things. I couldn't find any recorded cases of it. People might write in and have some, but there was a lot of anecdotal. Hey, I did see somebody do this. So I don't know. 
shenanigans. The reason this talent comes in handy is because if it's a hot news night, they can obviously process more with the leaner staff. Right. We have to accept that he's doing this. <laughs> sure. Uh, but the fact that John has the power to be able to do this two-handed writing thing, it seems to come at a cost. And that cost is he has very little imagination. Yeah, there's an interesting description of John. It says he was a wizard, a mechanical automatic wizard, which functioned marvelously but was without imagination. So he's he's almost like an automaton or a robot, mm-hmm. which makes him perfect for the job because journalism is only the facts. Right. But also from a story perspective, it sets up that this is a guy who wouldn't start making things up. Right. So on the night of the 16th of September, when this story takes place, the year obviously we don't know, but the first odd thing to happen is that John complains about being tired. Now, this is the first time that Jim has ever heard John talk about himself at all. It's not really a complaint. He says, (laughs) no. At 3 a.m., John asks if it feels clothes in the room. And I'm not sure what he means by clothes. I guess warm. Yeah, yeah. I think a little claustrophobic, maybe. And Jim offers to open up the window, but he says, nah, I must be tired. Hmm. That's it. That's all he says. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the moment, though. I'm especially a fan of this moment in general in story. And it's it's that moment when the wheels start to wobble. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll come off entirely at some point. But I love that moment when the characters first notice something's off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually my favorite Simpsons quote in that Jurassic Park type episode, the early one where they, they go to itchy and scratchy land and all the characters go haywire oh, right. and attack yeah. them. Mm-hmm. On their way to the theme park, they ask the helicopter pilot if it's safe. And he says, nothing could possibly go wrong. It's <laughs> <laughs> the first thing that's gone wrong. <laughs> it's such a funny moment. I've probably talked about it before, no, but John no. feeling sick, I think, is the possibly of this story. Uh-huh. I always call that moment the possibly moment. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a lot of paperwork. That's what Jim spends most of his time going through. About 20 minutes after he talks with John, John starts doing his two-arm typing thing, which Jim thinks is odd because there really isn't any news coming in. So one of the papers that John was typing was from this place called Zebico someplace that he's never heard of. It says, on my next trip, I picked up the copy from both machines and took it back to my desk to sort out the duplicates. In the second pile of copy, it read, Zebico, September 16th. The heaviest mist in the history of the city settled over the town at four o'clock yesterday afternoon. All traffic has stopped and the mist hangs like a pall over everything. Lights of ordinary intensity fail to pierce the fog, which is constantly growing heavier. Scientists here are unable to agree as to the cause, and the local weather bureau states that the like has never occurred before in the history of the city. Hmm. And that's it. And with all the crazy stuff they hear about up here, overnight, worldwide, this maybe isn't that big of a deal, but the city name sticks out to Jim. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a genius city name. I mean, who's ever heard of such a place? Zebico. We on this show, that's that's like every week there's going to be some <laughs> right. creature or, or place like that. I mean, that really, to me, has no real recognizable linguistic origin. Where would you suspect that a place called Zebico is? No, I don't know. It sounds a little like Zydeco, that music from New Orleans. But that's this is spelled with an X. Yeah. Whereas Zydeco is actually spelled with a Z. I, yeah, I don't know where it could be a place in Ohio or it could be in Spain. Nobody really knows. Fifteen minutes later, Jim goes over to see what the new stuff John is typing. His right hand was just doing normal stuff, but his left hand has more of this Zebico stuff. And I wonder if that's significant that it's his left hand that's cranking this mm-hmm. stuff out. Because isn't the left hand supposed to be associated with the right brain, the creative hemisphere of the brain? I thought he meant the devil. Right. The, the left hand is sinister. Yeah. It's, it's of the devil. Well, it, the left hand is typing. At 7 p.m., the fog had increased noticeably. All lights were now invisible, and the town was shrouded in pitch darkness. As a peculiarity of the phenomenon... The fog is accompanied by a sickly odor, 
comparable to nothing yet experienced here. Then there's more. Accounts as to the origin of the mist differ greatly. Among the most unusual is that of the sexton of the local church, who groped his way to headquarters in a hysterical condition and declared that the fog originated in the village churchyard. It was first visible as a soft gray blanket clinging to the earth above the graves, he stated. Then it began to rise, higher and higher. A subterranean breeze seemed to blow it in billows which split up and then joined together again. Fog phantoms writhing in anguish twisted the mist into queer forms and figures. And then, in the very thick of the mass, something moved. I turned and ran from the accursed spot. Behind me I heard screams coming from the houses bordering on the graveyard. Although the Sexton's story is generally discredited, a party has left to investigate. Immediately after telling his story, the Sexton collapsed and is now in a local hospital, unconscious. It's like a little separate weird fiction tale right in the middle of this. Mm -hmm. But it also has that journalistic distance to it. We only get the emotion in that quote from the sexton, but that journalistic aspect to it makes it even creepier. It's reported straight. It does. Yes, you're right. So Jim is fascinated by the story and is just waiting for the next bit. John Morgan is just sitting there, typing away with both hands, seemingly focused on his work. Another bit comes in. There's a rescue party that went out at 11 p.m. to investigate the origin of this fog. It says the fog has grown heavier. It's seeping through the cracks of doors in people's homes. Mm -hmm. It's filling uh, the, the atmosphere with a depressing odor of decay. It says it's, it bears with it a subtle impression of things long dead. Mm. I don't know. The descriptions are getting less journalistic at this point. Yeah. We get a Haunter of the Dark type scene. It says residents of the city have left their homes and gathered in the local church where the priests are holding services of prayer. They alternately wail and cross themselves. Hmm. This seems appropriate, you know, that it is getting more emotional as this gets scarier and invades more homes because when terrible things do happen, catastrophes, sometimes it's seeing the reporter lose it that brings home the impact of an event. Right. It's one thing to rattle off numbers and events, but, you know, I think of Herbert Morrison, who was the radio announcer who witnessed the Hindenburg disaster in right. the 30s. Him saying, oh, the humanity is what really, oh, man, this is bad. Right. And I, I think we're starting to feel that from the reporter that's sending this stuff in. The report says that the party sent to investigate hasn't returned and they sent out another larger party to see if they could figure out what was going on. The fog is growing thicker and parts of the mist are getting inside of the church. From the outskirts of the city may be heard cries of unknown voices. They echo through the fog in queer, uncadenced minor keys. The sounds resemble nothing so much as wind whistling through a gigantic tunnel, but the night is calm and there is no wind. Hmm uncadenced minor keys. These are cries you assume of horror, but the fact that they sound that way makes them really off. Jim says, in a dozen years spent with the wires, I've not been known to become excited, but despite myself, I, I was getting a little upset and I walked to the window. Uh, Jim looks out his window down on the city and he thinks that it's maybe getting a bit foggy as well, but he decides, no, that's just my mind playing tricks on me. And then I'm thinking, oh, geez, it's going to get all over the place. But right. actually, it is it is just as mind playing tricks on him. <laughs> it was a good psych out because I thought that was leading to something else. Oh, it definitely. Yeah, yeah. It adds to the tension for sure. So Jib looks over at John, who looks like he's kind of asleep, but he's still typing away on the two machines. Now, Jim can't wait. So now he's watching as John types out the messages one letter at a time. It says that the office will be closing down. No messages have come in. They are cut off from the outside. The last they heard, none of the investigation parties ever came back, and no one has any word about them. Right. That's what's coming in from Zebico. They've closed down the reporting office. 
The operator who is sending this message says that he is on the 13th floor of a building and he sees nothing, just darkness. I fear greatly that the wailing cries heard constantly from the outskirts of the city are the death cries of the inhabitants. They are constantly increasing in volume and are approaching the center of the city. Whoa. This fog hanging over everything, I know, this fog hanging over everything he can see, it's, it's changing in nature as well. It says, instead of an opaque, impenetrable wall of odorous vapor, there now swirls and writhes a shapeless mass in contortions of almost human agony. Oh. Again, think about the level of detachment here. Whatever is actually happening on street level is being observed by a reporter who's in this high rise on the evil 13th floor, mm-hmm. <laughs> who's transmitting his vague impressions to this Nightwire staff, somewhere completely different. It's such a cool trick that he's pulling off. So the reporter says, sometimes the mists part and he can see down down to the street. People are running to and fro, screaming in despair. A vast bedlam of sounds flies up to my window and above all is the immense whistling of unseen, unfelt winds. Lovecraft himself reportedly was really into this story. In letters to J. Vernon Shea, Richard Eli Morse, and Weird Tales editor Farnsworth Wright, Lovecraft picked the Nightwire is one of his six stories from Weird Tales that he felt were the best recent works. And this is what Wright wanted. Truly cosmic horror and macabre convincingness. Mm. HP was a big fan of the story. And I got to say that the author nails this Lovecraftian nondescriptor when he says whistling of unseen and unfelt winds. Yeah. Unfelt winds? That is the eeriest thing ever. Yeah. So everything's moving around and we can tell this is happening, but you don't feel air moving against you. That's spooky stuff, man. Solid. I mean, he's already alluded to it because in the report he's like, I'm hearing wind, I'm seeing it, but there's no wind. So mm. it's that is such an eerie effect. So that whistling sound is getting louder and closer right behind him and the mists part and he can see what's going on in the street. The fog is not simply vapor. It lives. By the side of each moaning and weeping human is a companion figure, an aura of strange and very colored hues. How the shapes cling, each to a living thing. The men and women are down, flat on their faces. The fog figures caress them lovingly. They are kneeling beside them. They are... But I dare not tell it. The prone and writhing bodies have been stripped of their clothing. They are being consumed piecemeal. A merciful wall of hot steaming vapor has swept over the whole scene. I can see no more. Beneath me, the wall of vapor is changing colors. It seems to be lighted by internal fires. No, it isn't. I've made a mistake. The colors are from above. Reflections from the sky. Look up. Look up. The whole sky is in flames. Colors as yet unseen by man or demon. The flames are moving. They have started to intermix. The colors are rearranging themselves. They are so brilliant that my eyes burn. They are a long way off. Now they have begun to swirl, to circle in and out, twisting in intricate designs and patterns. The lights are racing, each with each, a kaleidoscope of unearthly brilliance. I have made a discovery. There is nothing harmful in the lights. They radiate force and friendliness, almost cheeriness. But by their very strength, they hurt. As I look, they are swinging closer and closer, a million miles at each jump, millions of miles with the speed of light. Ah, it is a light of quintessence of all light. Beneath it, the fog melts into a jeweled mist, radiant rainbow colored of a thousand varied spectra. I can see the streets. Why, 
They are filled with people. The lights are coming closer. They are all around me. I am enveloped. I... And the message stops there. What is happening? <laughs> Things are coming down from above and the mist is coming up. And and what are the shapes kneeling down and doing with the naked bodies on the ground? I mean, it, it then says they are... Consumed piecemeal, but what does that mean? Well, yes, the reporter moves on to say they're consumed piecemeal, but he abruptly stops saying something else before he moves on to that. So clearly the things devouring the bodies wasn't the thing that he didn't want to report. There's something else going on there. I also love the whisper and darkness switch in tone in this account, right? Mm -hmm. When he says, I've discovered there's nothing harmful in the light. Oh, right. <laughs> you know, and you expect the next fire to be written by the mist itself. You know, this just in, mist, great. <laughs> Creatures all like to be inside mist. <laughs> Counterpoint, mist not great, mist wonderful. You know, that is a fantastic passage, and it's got so much of the cosmicism of Lovecraft in it as well. It's one thing, and then it becomes another thing, and then it becomes another thing, and then it changes again, and then it's... Colors as yet unseen by man or demon. It just feels like it's somebody trying to describe the indescribable. Like, they think yeah. they've got it, but then they're like, nope, I'm wrong. It's more like this. And it's like, nope, that's not it. I can't figure out how to describe it because it just truly unique. It's unlike anything that's ever happened before. But there is some information that seems to have been imparted here when it says they're swinging closer and closer a million miles at each jump. It makes it sound like they are moving these shapes, these things are moving forward from outer space millions of miles with the speed of light. Yeah. So is this the coming of the great old ones? You know, is this what it would be like? I don't know. Is this happening in some parallel dimension where, we, you know, we're only hearing about it? Why is it coming through the night? Why? Well, we're not done with the story yet. Yeah, let's keep reading and maybe we'll get some answers. Spoiler, we will. John Morgan <laughs> stops typing and they both just quietly ponder for a moment. Jim looks at Morgan to see that he is slumped over. His eyes are open and fixed. Jim picks up the phone and calls Chicago. But there was something wrong. Chicago was reporting that wire two had not been used throughout the evening. Morgan, I shouted, Morgan, wake up. It isn't true. Someone has been hoaxing us. Why, in my eagerness, I grasped him by the shoulder. His body was quite cold. Morgan had been dead for hours. Could it be that his sensitized brain and automatic fingers had continued to record impressions even after the end? I shall never know, for I shall never again handle the night shift. Whatever it was that killed John Morgan will forever remain a mystery. And that's the end of the story. So what the hell is this? And the ending line tells you it will forever remain a mystery. <laughs> but I mean, I don't even know... I mean, it could be another world, like you were saying, another dimension. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be a prediction of the future, perhaps. Yeah, maybe this town, maybe this city he's in will become Zebico. But I mean, that seems unlikely. Towns don't usually change their name. And, and there was elements that earlier that we got, like there are scientists in Zebico. Mm. There's a sexton. There's churches. Yeah. That sounds very Earth-like. It's being written in English. Yeah, well, that's what I thought. Maybe when he peered down and he saw that fog, the reason he was seeing it is because that, that, that crossover is happening. It's just a light crossover. He's seeing into that other dimension just for a moment. Right. The same way that it's just coming in over the wire. And town, you know, Istanbul was Constantinople. Now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. You know, it's so. been a long time gone, Constantinople. Mm. Now, remember, John wasn't feeling well at the beginning. So one thing that I thought is 
he either kind of maybe went insane or he had like a stroke. Yeah. What happens in that? Because he's the one that's typing all this stuff out. It is coming from him. Now, if he's been dead for hours, that's pretty crazy. But is this all an internal thing? Is it a mist within his mind, you know, coming for him, coming for his brain? Yeah. And he's so regimented to working in this AP style, almost mechanically, that this is how it comes out when he's in those final moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or it could have been that he was tuned into some otherworldly thing and then that was too much for him to take and it killed him. Right. It was such a powerful message that's being sent across that he's become a conduit, even though his brain has ceased to work. <laughs> right. Yeah, the fact that he was dead for hours kind of cancels out the idea that, that he had a sled Zebico when he was a kid and this was his life. Uh, kind of, <laughs> no. <laughs> because it is does, it seems that way. You know, when the mist starts, they say it starts in the churchyard. It comes from the grave. Right. Uh, and, and then it starts slowly annihilating everything. And, and this might be the fog of death as we feel all of our memories being pulled away from us as we slowly descend into into death. Maybe that's what it is, but I think... It's probably closer that what the author wanted it to be was a prediction of the future or a, a connection with a different dimension. Mm. But again, maybe H.F. Arnold isn't even a person, the author of this thing. So, you know, did the editors of Weird Tales ever meet him? I couldn't find any record of that. So maybe the story just got sent in or was wired into the Weird Tales, you know. Oh is is it an, It's just another level of detachment from the fate of Zebico that makes this such a cool story, you know. I mean, I imagine if they never met him, if this was something that came in the mail. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> like the art, the author, the artist has become part of the art. Yes, exactly. There's two things here that are frequently lifted, one more than the other. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, there's this mechanism of the mist or the fog, sure. uh, which we've seen in the films The Mist and The Fog. <laughs> These are, and also the Stephen King story, The the, the Mist, which is a really incredible story. True. The Mist in and of itself is an interesting device because it deliberately obscures what might be out there. Right. So it's yet another level of detachment. The monster itself exists in a gauzy place that you can't make out the details of. Right. So that that's a really cool, weird creature to have. Right. You know, I think in The Mist, there were some some Lovecraftian monsters in it. And then in the, in the Fog, there's what, pirate ghosts that are in, yeah, in the, in the fog. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you don't really get to see exactly what's in there. The way that the story is told, I think, we get to see every once in a while in a movie like Signs, the M. Night Shyamalan movie, yeah. where the event happens, but we're seeing it from the point of view of people who are, like most of us would be, yeah. on the outskirts of it. They can only receive it through television programs and what they see in the distance. It's, it's sort of like when you're, you know, we see war footage, modern war footage on the news. Mm-hmm. You see those flashes in the distance and those tracers and the smoke. But you have no idea what's happening on the ground back there. Mm-hmm. You only see the evidence of it from out here yeah. and can make assumptions. And when stories are told that way, you get less of the gory details, but you get more of a human connection because that's how most of us have to experience the world. We're all on the sidelines for the most part. Yeah. What other new fears do we have coming up this month? I think next week, uh, well, it's not something new for us. We've definitely touched on rats before. But I, but people, when we did the, uh, what was the rat story? We did Skeleton Key. Yeah. A lot of folks suggested this story. Yes. Next week's story is called The Graveyard Rats. And is by Henry Kuttner. More rat action. That's going to be really fun. I want to thank some of our uh, some of our patrons because I love them. I love them too, deeply, passionately. Mm-hmm. I want to thank first of all the Miskatonic University podcast, an excellent podcast. Everybody should check it out. Also, want to thank Jeremy Harmon. I'd like to thank Christian Matsky. Corey Wittig. I'd like to thank David Dean. I want to thank John Neville. I'd like to thank Chris Schaefer. Thank you, Caitlin O'Malley. I'd like to thank Jeff McCarty and Ashley Werner. Thank you so much. 
And of course, our reader for this episode, Andrew Lehman, thank you. Oh my gosh, Andrew is amazing. And if you think he's amazing, you should check out all the stuff at the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. It's got everything that you would ever want that is Lovecraftian <laughs> in nature. I'm serious. It has everything. Yes. Go get your decoder. Go get your great Dark Adventure Radio Theater adventures. I think they're shipping the Masks of Nyarlathotep stuff now. I've oh, been waiting yes. on that. As always, go over to that site. Check the stuff out. Thank you, Andrew. You're wonderful. And we will be back next week with the Graveyard Rats. That's all we have for now. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.